This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, well, I'm going to start, and maybe if I start talking, people outside will hear too. Um, today, I'm going to talk about, or right now, I'm going to talk about the ministry of healing the mind. And we've, we're probably aware of the book, Ministry of Healing, but there's actually a lot of things that we can do to heal the mind. When I was in first grade, I mentioned in the last seminar that I had difficulty learning how to read when I was younger. Part of that was because I was stubborn and partly because the rules did not make sense when it came to actually reading. Words like enough, that's not spelled like it's supposed to according to what you learn in school. And I had a really difficult time learning how to read, but my incentive was that there was only one other kid in what I like to call the delinquent reading group when I was in first grade. And he was the troublemaker in the class. And so I decided I'm either gonna be stuck with him forever or I've gotta get myself into uh, gear and learn how to read or else I'm gonna be stuck with him and I'm gonna have the same reputation he does. Um, he's, he's a nice guy today, but <laughs> I had some trouble as a first grader being stuck in the group with him. And he'd get teased all the time, and then I felt like that teasing was put on to me too because we were both in the same reading group. So when the summer between first and second grade came along, I decided that I was going to read an entire book in one day. Well, that's a big deal when you're in first grade. And it was one of those Dick Jane Spot books, but it was like the ones with the chapters in it. So I buckled down and I put myself in my room and I spent the entire day reading that book. And I was convinced by the end of the day that I would be a much better reader and I wouldn't have to be in the delinquent reading group when I went back to second grade. I didn't have to go back to the delinquent reading group when I was in second grade. And I learned how to read. So it was a good thing, but we don't realize sometimes it takes work to do the things that we really need. And some of us have been put in some bad habits of thinking because of the way we grew up or the things that we were taught. And so I want to spend some more time with you if you've been to some of the other seminars I've done. And those of you who are new, this is your first time, teaching you that there is actually an art to thinking. There's actually an art to the way we put our thoughts together. And often we think, our belief is, is that I don't have any choice in the matter. I'm just the way that I am, and that it's extenuating circumstances, other people's faults, or just the circumstances we have in our life that bring us to these bad places in our life. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, this always happens to me. Why do I always get stuck in this situation? The simple answer, you're not going to like me afterwards because of you. We are often, I know, it's, not the, it's, not, it's the simple answer, but I'm going to explain that to you, and I'm going to actually show you exactly how this works. But so many times, we are our own worst enemy. It's not somebody else doing it to us. We think that it's easier to believe that it's somebody else, but we are actually doing this to ourselves. And I was doing that to myself for a long time. I thought all of these things in my life were, I just got the short straw. I just got the short stick or whatever the saying is you want to use. I thought that I had no choice and these are just the circumstances. But if, in actuality, if we look around us, if we pay attention, there are people who are actually doing a lot worse than we are sometimes. Or they have worse circumstances or worse people in their life. But I believe that depression and anxiety are diseases of self. And I'll explain that. When I am depressed, I'm focusing on all of the psychosomatic symptoms that are happening in my body. The heart rate beating fast, my blood pressure going up, my breathing going fast. I'm taking lots of short, shallow breaths. And I think, oh, there's something wrong with me. And people who have anxiety attacks, where do they eventually end up? 
in the ER. And then the doctor does all the tests just to rule out there's a heart problem. And then at the end of the visit, the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with you. Just take this pill. Well, what is the pill? It's like Xanax or something like that to reduce the anxiety. But that is, I don't want the people I work to be dependent on medications. I don't want them to think that that's the only answer to their problems because there are a lot of people in this world. It used to be that therapy and mental illness was seen as taboo. Nobody wanted to talk about it, and still in some places it is. Absolutely. But you know what I'm starting to see in the media more and more now? And this almost saddens me even more, is that people think of mental illness as like just their personality. Well, I'm depressed. What are you? Oh, you're anxious? I'm depressed. Oh, what are you? Oh, you're depressed too? Oh, yay. We're both depressed. And you even see this in the movies too now. Not that I'm watching these movies, but I pay attention to the things that are going around. around. And some of these movies are actually starting to glamorize mental illness. You see, you see movies where the whole movie is about two people who are in a mental illness hospital and they fall in love and their crazy just works together. That doesn't really work the way they say it does, but that's what these people think. And so rather than, rather than ignoring it, now we're flipping way over to the other end of the spectrum and we're saying, oh, well, everybody has mental illness. What's yours? I don't think we were meant to live that way. And I come from my own depression and anxiety, not anymore, but I had that. And I'm here to tell you, you don't have to stay with that. Fortunately, I grew up in a time where nobody went to the, the therapist and they didn't have all the medications that they do nowadays. So I didn't even have those options. But there were things that I had to learn to tell myself in order for me to get out of that. And I believe very much for any one of you that might be experiencing it, anyone in your life that you might be able to have some influence in helping, that there is a way out. And it's not just medication. Now, some people might need something to kick them into gear, but I don't believe that that is supposed to be the way of life that God intended for us. And there are some lifestyle choices and some thought choices that we can make to get out of that. So I want to share some of those things with you today. So far, I've been talking about irrational beliefs. And irrational beliefs are the things that get us into the long-term depression, the long-term anxiety. Sorry, you'll have to bear with me. The screen keeps going out every once in a while. But the slide right there shows that, you know, sometimes, like, say you um, can't go to bed until 4 a.m. or you can't fall asleep until 4 a.m. Well, what happens because of that? You wind up sleeping until 11 a.m., so I can't get to sleep that night. And this is often what we do with our own mental illness is we say, well, I'm stuck with this, so I'm forever going to be stuck with it. And we actually perpetuate the mental illness. If I wake up and I'm depressed in the morning, what do I tell myself? See, it never goes away. I'm just stuck with that. Well, what am I likely to feel the rest of the day if I tell myself, see, I'm just stuck with depression? I'm likely to feel depressed the rest of the day. If I wake up and my heart's racing and I'm having a hard time breathing and I tell myself, see, Amanda, you have anxiety, you're never going to get over it, what, do I, what am I going to wind up doing? I'm going to be anxious now about being full of anxiety. You know, the interesting, interesting thing is when we have anxiety, we're more likely to have depression. And when we have depression, we're more likely to have anxiety. You know why that is? Every day that I wake up depressed, now I'm anxious about the next day that I'm going to wake up depressed. Every day that I'm anxious, now I'm depressed that I'm anxious all the time. So they, they facilitate each other. But I want to share with you what I consider to be the pattern of why we get stuck in this way. And I like to call it the five Ps. The first P, and this is also how you're going to be able to understand why you get stuck in the patterns that you do, why the same thing tends to happen to you over and over and over again, whether you get into the same relationships over and over again, whether you go out, whether you hang out with the same people all the time, whether you seem to attract drama in your life and things like that. There is actually a reason this happens. And so I'm going to share these five Ps with you. And the first P is past. This is based on experience that I've already have 
that tend me or tend to lead me to thinking that these are going to happen again. So this is the partial sum of our experiences that we use as what we call evidence for our irrational beliefs. So when I say partial sum, what I mean is if I am 15 years old and I have grown up in a difficult environment, maybe I've been teased or something like that, um, then what am I most likely to tell myself about the future of my relationships? Yeah, I'm going to think, well, I'm just, there's a problem with me. I'm going to get teased all the time, right? And this is often what happens. And so the past can be the reason why some of us experience these things. But what we've learned from the previous seminars is that the past is not always an accurate indicator of what's going to happen in the future. How many people are there in the world? About 7 billion, right? If I grew up in a family of, actually I'm going to share with you an example of a client that I had. I had a client who grew up in a family and she was one of probably three kids and the other two were boys. And her father and those two brothers abused her. I'm not going to go into all the details, but those, the men in her life all abused her. So based on her past, what do you think she believed about men? All men are abusers. And so this leads to number two, predict. So based on her past, she believed or she predicted, remember this all goes back to our beliefs. She predicted, which is a belief, that the past experience is going to lead to the future. So her belief was all men are going to abuse me just like the men in my life. And this was actually a client of mine, and she believed that all men were going to be the same way that her father and her brothers were to her. Now, how many people do we decide were in the world? Roughly about seven billion. Are three men indicative of the other three and a half billion men in the world? That would be a poor way to decide what all men were like. I don't think all men are abusers. But I know some women have experienced that. Even some boys or men have experienced abuse from men. And that's one of the reasons we find a lot of people having trouble with their identity. I'm glad that the plenary speaker talked about identity because that's a huge issue that people are facing right now is identity. And sometimes past experience with men, with women, can set us up for predicting who we are based on that and who others are based on those past experiences. So in this case, this woman predicted that all men were going to be like that. Well, the problem is, is when you predict those things, what happens is, you know, most women at some point in their life want to be in a relationship. I used to work in um, substance recovery, and I worked in a women's program. So it was a residential program. And I want you to know that not everything you hear in the media is true. I hope you already knew that. But not everything you hear in the media is true. And in this specific case, I worked with some women who had been abused by men in their lives, and they didn't necessarily feel sexually attracted to women, but when men are dangerous, but you want love, and you don't have a true sense of your identity and other people's identities, then you will often go to the thing that gets you to the closest to love, even if it's not the thing you're physically attracted to. And I've seen this over and over and over again. So not one size fits all for the issues that we're dealing with in our society. But this woman, she wanted to be in a relationship. Now, she didn't choose to be with another woman, but she decided, well, if all men are abusive, do you think she's going to be discerning about what kind of man she chooses to be in her life? If they're all abusive, why would I even care? I already think they're going to be abusive, so I'll just take what I get. And so she was not discerning about the men that she would bring into her life. And also she was in an environment where there probably weren't a lot of great stand-up guys. But she decided what happened in my past will happen again. Well, we talked about 11 irrational belief categories. And if you get the chance, if 
if they put me on Audioverse or something, I hope you listen to it if you weren't here for the previous session. This is an example of overgeneralization. And overgeneralization, when I think what happened to me one or two times or by one or two people or not enough to count it as a true um, case or evidence, that I will just assume all things will be that way. And it's also a matter of fortune telling where I predict the future is going to be based on what I think it is and not necessarily what's true. And I know some good men in this world who are not abusive. So I want you to know that I don't believe the same thing that she does or she did. But what, when we predict something, it also leads to the next thing. Well, in her case, she predicted that and she wound up getting a lot of abusive guys in her life. But then the next thing that we do, and I want you to be thinking of this in terms of what you experience yourself, what you go through. Maybe your thing isn't abusive people in your life, but maybe you have something else. I want you to be putting yourself in this place uh, as we go through the five Ps. But the third thing is now project. If I believe something, we have something in psychology and the word is project. And what that means is I ascribe unacceptable qualities to another person, not necessarily accurately, but based on past experiences. So if I really believe something is going to happen, then I start looking for reasons to follow that prediction or continue to believe that prediction. And for example, she said, you're going to hurt me just like they did because you did this. Now, if I decide at any point to walk outside of that door there, and there's a man standing by the door, but he doesn't hold the door open for me, or he walks through first and doesn't stop to hold it open for me, if my belief is that all men are abusive, I could easily take that moment and go, see, he treats me just like all men have. See what I'm doing? I'm projecting undesirable characteristics on him merely because he didn't open up the door for me. Not because he's a jerk, not because he's abusive. I haven't seen that. But if I believe something, I will start to project that belief onto all of the circumstances in my life. For instance, if somebody lets me down, and they show that they're untrustworthy to me. And then I call up a friend and we're supposed to meet up later, and my friend calls me and says, you know what, Amanda, I'm so sorry, but I'm gonna be 10 minutes late because I got stuck in traffic or I was doing something else and I totally lost track of time. I could easily take that first feeling of, or first belief of not being able to trust people because that was my experience in one case and start projecting that onto this situation and go, see, She's just putting me off because just like everyone else, I can't trust her either. And then what if I go down to the store and I buy something and it doesn't wind up getting in my grocery um, bag after I'm done paying for it? Now I can go, see, he's not trustworthy either because he didn't put my stuff in the grocery bag just like that didn't happen to me earlier and it didn't happen to me earlier before that. I can't trust people. Now, is that necessarily the fact that all people are not trustworthy or I can't get them to do things for me or there's something wrong with me? No, but if that's what I want to see, I can easily put together the evidence in a way to make it meet what my belief is or what my prediction is. And sometimes this is what we do. If I believe I attract drama, I'm going to start looking for all the drama that happens and I'm probably going to start getting myself involved in it because I believe that I attract drama. I had a girl um, in the group home that I was working with, and I said, I said to her, because um, she had been in, in a really bad situation growing up, and just all the stories she would tell me, I was exhausted hearing them. And not because I didn't want to hear them, but all of the stuff that she was putting herself through, the relationships, how people were mistreating her, how she was getting involved with people she shouldn't have. I finally asked her, I said, don't you ever just want your life to be calm? And she said, no. That would be boring. <laughs> and I thought, oh my, I can't, I can't imagine a life like that where you're always caught up in stuff. But what was she doing? She was actually looking for those opportunities to create drama because she got used to it. And then this leads us to the next thing, 
which is provoking. So the woman that I gave you the example of where she was in the abusive relationships, she eventually, after telling me all the stories of the abusive relationships that she had been in, she finally told me that, you know what, I actually met this really nice guy once. Well, if you date enough, you're probably bound to find a good one in there. And so she found a good one. And I wasn't the one, I never met him, so I, it wasn't me who said he was a good guy, it was her. I, so I still don't know. But she thought he was actually a good guy. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, when I met him, I was so convinced that he was going to abuse me like all the others that one day we were having an argument. Now, she was not living the kind of lifestyle that I would encourage. She was living with her boyfriend, and they were on the bed one day, and they got into a disagreement. Now, from what she said, it wasn't a bad one, but they got into a disagreement. Well, what's a person to do when she thinks she's going to be hurt by a man, and it hasn't happened yet, and she's on the edge of her seat because her belief or her prediction is, I'm going to get hurt? Well, she started provoking the hurt now. She started pushing him. She started yelling at me at him because she was convinced that he was going to treat her just like all the other guys had. Well, what's a guy to do when he's being hit and he's being ridiculed and put down? Most people are not therapists. They don't go, oh, here, let's talk about this. I can see how this and this and this means this is happening to you and everything. No, most people don't do that. Most people don't get this. And so, of course, the first he thing he's going to be thinking about is, I need to defend myself. I'm getting hurt. So he grabbed her and pushed her away. Now, he wasn't violent about it. There's a difference. And she's the one that said, I pushed him and he pushed me back to get me off of him. And she understood what had happened after the fact. Well, when he pushed her off of him, what do you think she said? See, you're just like I thought you were going to be. You're just like all the other guys who treated me that way. Now, I'm not here saying you should get in relationships with any guy because they're not as abusive as you know she thought that they were or, or whatever. Use discernment. But in her case... He was not going to hurt her. He was not going to hit her. He was not going to treat her badly by what she told me. But she didn't trust that because what was her belief? Now, the worst part isn't the fact that she provoked it. The worst part is that it becomes a pattern. And this is the fifth P. This is what happens when people say, I'm always getting myself into these situations. Or they don't even always say that. They'll just say, why does this always happen to me? I'm like a magnet for these things. But I've known women who've, I'm using women as an example because I hear a lot of these things, but I know women who go on dates and they'll start berating the guy about, you better treat me like this or you better do this because the last guy who tried this, I didn't let him get away with it. And I'm telling her, why would you just assume that he's going to do that? That says a lot about her, that she's assuming that a guy's going to treat her that way. Right? And this is the problem. This is the definition of insanity when we do the same thing over and over and over again, and we expect a different result. But even worse than that is when we do the same thing over and over again, and we ac actually expect the same result. That's an even worse form of insanity. So I hope that as you look at this, the five Ps, that you will start to ask yourself questions of what am I predicting? What are the things in my past that I've experienced that I may be provoking? I may be predicting and projecting, and they're becoming a pattern in my life. Am I doing that? Say, for instance, I fail my first grade spelling test. And what if I tell myself, you know, I'm a poor speller. I can't spell worth anything. Do you think I'm going to try to learn how to spell after that? But yet lots of people do. Lots of people actually overcome their weaknesses, their, their initial weaknesses. But so often when something happens to us, maybe once, maybe twice, even three times, we go, oh, that's a pattern. This is just going to, this is how it's always going to be. And then we live our lives 
by that pattern. And then we wonder why we're in the same situation every single time we try, if we try. I want you to avoid that. And I don't believe that God intends for any of us to be in that pattern over and over and over again. But one of the beautiful things about Spirit of Prophecy, as I've been reading, I love Ellen White, for those of you who haven't heard me say that before. I love being an Adventist, and I love Ellen White. I am equally as excited and afraid of her. <laughs> I'm like, I want her to be my best friend. And I'm like, wait, she'd be really honest with me. I'm not sure about that. But I would, I would appreciate that. One of, my, one of my close friends is actually very um, forward with me. She'll say whatever she thinks, and I love it. I'm like, I never have to wonder what she's thinking. But these kinds of people and the, these kinds of things in our lives, we want to pay attention to the truth. We want to actually look through our patterns. We want to see what's going on because sometimes those people in our lives that try to tell us something, God's using those people to unearth those, those roots that we've been digging deeper and deeper and deeper into our life patterns. And I believe also um, Spirit of Prophecy says that one of the reasons we keep going through the same thing over and over and over again and I'm going to spend some more time on this on um, my Sabbath talk. God wants us to gain victory in it. So if we continue to go through these patterns, God's letting it happen, not because he hates us. That's, the, that's what the devil tells us that's happening. But he lets us go through these patterns because he wants us to be victorious in them. And we'll never be victorious until we actually go through it and come out victorious. So we, sometimes we have to go through these things until we learn, until we have that moment where we go, oh, that's why this keeps happening. I need to do something different. And God is patient enough with us to do that. God is not the helicopter parent that does it for us and says, no, okay, I'll come in and fix that for you so you don't have to deal with it at all. God's the parent that sits patiently by and says, okay, why don't you try it this way? I'll be patient while you figure it out see, it didn't work this time. Why don't we try a different way to do it next time? And I'll sit here patiently until you figure it out. I had a kid in the group home. Um, I was telling um, the group before that I worked in a group home for seven years, and I worked with all of the criminal kids, the gangs, the drugs, any kind of crime you can imagine. I worked with those kids. I loved it. I was like a even though I was stubborn growing up, I was like the good kid. I never did anything really bad. I talked back maybe, but I didn't do anything really bad. I was always too scared of the outcome. Maybe that's what makes me a therapist. I could always see the future and what that meant. But I remember a kid, I was sitting with him and I was talking with him and he, and he kept telling me how he was doing this thing over and over and over again that just kept hurting him. I mean, it was... It was frustrating for me to watch him. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, if I ever wanted to strangle somebody, it was like right now. And it was not because I didn't like him or I was like super angry. It was that I was watching him inflict pain on himself over and over and over again. And he was not willing to pay attention to how he kept perpetuating the pain. And I hated sin and I just wanted to stop it. So I didn't want to kill him. I just wanted to like shake him <laughs> and get it through to him. And I realized in that moment that I was getting frustrated. You know, sometimes when you're in the, in the worst situations, God speaks to you in those. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, Amanda, maybe God's doing this with you. He's just being patient with you because he realizes you keep making the same choices over and over again, and you keep struggling. Now, maybe I wasn't struggling with the same things he was, but we're all struggling with something. We better be struggling with something because I don't think anybody's done yet. But we should be struggling with it because we should be working out our salvation, as the Bible tells us we're supposed to be doing. And so the struggle is not something we should fear. It's something we should say, thank you, God, for working with me on this one, too. But I remember in that moment thinking, God, this is what you are doing with me. I had a lot more compassion on him after that. <laughs> but this is the five Ps. But this is just a reminder from Testimonies from the Church, um, book five, 
page 310, you should acquire habits of self-control. Even your thoughts must be brought into subjection to the will of God. We actually need to control what we think. If we think that we're the victim all the time, we need to change that thought. We need to control that thought and replace it with something else. And your feelings under the control of reason and religion. We're going to get to that control of reason and religion. Your imagination was not given you to be allowed to run riot and have its own way without any effort at restraint or discipline. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings combined make up the moral character. This is what we're working on is our moral character. So the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy, I know some of you have seen this already. It's like a commercial. You hear it over and over again. You're more likely to absorb it if you hear it over and over again. So the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive merely stands for our thoughts. And what I should do it this way because you're looking that way. Our thoughts lead to our behaviors, and our behaviors eventually lead to how we ultimately feel. So that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. It's looking at our thoughts and our behaviors and how those affect how we feel. But these are the, these are the main elements, and these are the ABCs. You only have to remember five letters. You don't have to go through the whole alphabet. The activating event, these are the things in our lives that merely set us up for a belief. When I say the word activate, what do you think of? If you activate something, you start it, you get it going, right? So activating events, those people that bug us, harass us, all those situations in life that we don't like, those merely activate a belief. And that belief can either be rational or irrational. It can be our self-talk, our thoughts. Anytime something happens, you will have a thought about it. You will have a belief about it. You will have self-talk about it. Everything that happens to you, you will have a response, responsive belief about it. If you don't think so, merely slow yourself down until you can figure out what it is. But that belief then directly affects your consequences. Most people think that the activating events in my life make me feel and do certain things. So we say things like, he made me do it. She made me feel this way right? We hear that all the time, but that's not actually true. What he said about me led to a belief that I already have about myself or I choose to believe about myself, which leads to how I ultimately feel and behave. So if somebody calls me a bad name, that sounds so cute, like a little kid said it, huh? Bad name. Um, if somebody says a derogatory comment about me, I have... <laughs> See, I wanted to show you that I was mature and I can use big words. If somebody says a derogatory statement about me, I have the choice to believe, A, I'm exactly who they said I am because they must know everything about me and be able to make those decisions. That's one example. Or the other choice I have is to believe that they can have their opinion. They can say whatever they want to. We still live well, mostly in a country that believes in freedom of speech. And so they can say that, but it doesn't mean that's who I am. Maybe that's more a reflection of who they are that they're calling me that name than it is actually a reflection of who I am. Do you see the difference? I get to choose what I believe about what that person does, what they say, that circumstance, how it happens. And then that's ultimately what, how I decide or how I feel or how I behave. Now, if I... If I believe the first one, how am I going to feel? Down in the dumps, probably. I'm going to act out. I'm going to isolate, maybe do some self-harm kinds of things. But if I actually believe that, hey, that person has the right to say whatever they want, I don't have to like it, but they still have the right to say what they want and believe what they want, and it's not necessarily a reflection of me, how am I going to feel after that? I'm going to have a little bit more power in the situation. I'm going to feel a lot more hopeful in the situation. And I don't have to go hurt myself. I don't have to drowse down, you know, a tub of ice cream and some chocolate and go watch some, you know, movie that makes me not have to think about what just happened. I don't have to call somebody and vent about how awful this person is that they called me this. I don't have to do that. Because I've just told myself, now which one is true? 
probably a lot closer to the second one. Now, if I've done something to elicit that kind of criticism, then maybe it's true and I have to evaluate that and what I should do next. But in most cases, we're not as bad as people say we are when they say the worst about us. And so if that happens, I'm not gonna feel, I'm not gonna feel so bad. I'm not gonna do anything bad because I don't have to call everybody. But if I do have irrational beliefs, then I need to dispute them. And when I dispute an irrational belief and I replace it or reframe it with a more rational belief, that's what brings about effective change. It has nothing to do with the activating event and everything to do with what I believe about the activating event. So when people want me to take out their mother or their spouse or something like that when they come to therapy, I say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Uh, ethically, I can't do that either, but I can't do that. I can't fix them. They're not here. You're here. So let's do what we can with who's here. And so, but that's a lifestyle change. I don't want to, I don't want to give you any fad diet with your thinking. I want to give you a lifestyle change with your thinking. And that's what we're here to do. So there are four different strategies of how to actually dispute my beliefs when I have irrational ones, when I have stinking thinking is one, another way we call it. The first one is a logical strategy. And I have to ask my myself a question. When I notice that I have negative emotions, I feel hopeless and helpless and things like that, then obviously my belief is going to be irrational because no rational belief is going to lead me to feel hopeless and helpless. So if, if I'm feeling hopeless and helpless, I have to ask myself, are my beliefs and self-talk reasonable, sensible, and logical? Is this really how it is? Is what I'm feeling or thinking true? Do you know a lot of people say, I feel like this person is, is doing this to hurt me. That's not actually a feeling, it's a thought. But we say feeling as though it's a thought. So that's just another little thing I wanna share with you. But is what I'm thinking true? Is this emotional reasoning on my or their part? When I shared with you the irrational belief categories, one of the big ones is emotional reasoning. I believe something because of how I feel, not because of how it really is. And sometimes people will believe things solely based on their emotions. The sad thing is that sometimes people in our lives have emotional reasoning and we believe them because they're so convincing with how they're responding to their emotional reasoning. I've worked with lots of people, and I'm just going to use this in, as an example. Sometimes parents deal with their children's emotional reasoning. Now, have you ever seen a kid throw a tantrum and mom will try to convince the kid to stop throwing the tantrum because it's in public and what mom wants to have to deal with their kid throwing a tantrum in public. It's embarrassing. But then the mom will try to start reasoning with the child and then the child keeps throwing the tantrum and then the mom will eventually say, okay, fine, I'll give it to you if you just stop. Well, as soon as you give the kid it, what does the kid do? But you know... <laughs> The kid learns, the, the kid stops but then learns, if I act out, if I use emotional reasoning, I'll get what I want. Well, fast forward 20 years, and that keeps happening. Now when the kid is no longer a little kid and is an adult, and they're at work and their boss gives them a project and it's the 11th hour of the day and they're ready to go home, and that now adult says, oh, I shouldn't have to deal with this. This is so unfair. And they cry, I can't do this. And then they don't show up at work the next day because they don't feel like it. I think I'm coming down with a cold. I can't do it. That's what we get when we give in to other people's emotional reasoning. And I've seen this happen over and over again. I've seen it actually happen to the point where parents will give their drug addict kids money. Because that kid might say something like, I need money. And the parent goes, I can't give it to you because I know what you're going to do with it. We've been over this before. And the kids start saying things like, yeah, but when I was eight and you abandoned me and you let this and this and this happen, you don't love me. You didn't love me then and you don't love me now. 
And what happens, the kid's emotional reasoning now turns into the parent's emotional reasoning. Now because of guilt, I feel like I need to give in because I don't want to be that bad parent. Do two wrongs make a right? No. Giving in just because of guilt, just because of feeling bad about those past things, is that the best way to remedy the problem? Absolutely not. But sometimes our friends do this too, emotional reasoning. Oh, I've had such a bad day. I just want to buy this thing. I know I can't afford it, but I need to do something nice for myself. And then they say, oh, what do you think? Should I get this? And we go, yeah, you deserve it. (laughs) Right? I feel sorry for my friends when they do stuff like that to me. (laughs) because they know how I'm going to respond. (laughs) It is not the most fun having a therapist for a friend. (laughs) But the Bible says, come, let us reason together. We need to be reasoning and not feeling about things, about making our decisions. But the next one is a reality-based strategy. So this is the second of four strategies for disputing. This is where we ask ourselves, are my beliefs and self-talk based on actual evidence and observation? Have you either been with somebody or have them be with you and they've said like, oh, my life is falling apart, nothing's going right. And then you're like, no, that's not true. This just happened over here. And what about this? This was a good situation. No, you don't understand. Everything is just falling apart. Well, what are, we, what are we doing? We're not basing it off of evidence and observation because if we were, we wouldn't, be having, we wouldn't be saying all those things because we'd also be taking into evidence the good things that were happening, right? And the evidence would probably balance itself out at least if not show that good things were happening even more than bad. So have I seen evidence of this? Am I missing something and should I look for more evidence or how others might see the situation? And one of the previous talks I talked about the fact that, you know, if you're a good judge, are you going to have the defendant and, um, what's the other one? Just trying to see if you're awake. Prosecutor. If you're going to have both of those in front of you and one is right, but you like the, the way the other one dresses better, are you going to go, you know what, I like her. So even though the evidence is pointing that this person is right in this case, I'm just going to go with her and I'm going to say that she's right. You would never do that. You would get kicked out of court in no time. How about a scientist? Well, I think kids who eat lots of candy do better in school, and then you do all the evidence and you find out, no, actually kids who eat lots of candy don't do better in school, but I really like candy, so I don't want to say that candy's bad. So I'm just going to say candy's good. No scientist would ever, well, I don't know, there's some bad science out there, but... If you're a good scientist, you would never do that. You would be able to show proof of it. And yet so often we feel a certain way or we think a certain way and we don't have any evidence for it. We just go, well, I feel this way. This is what I think. Even though other people are telling us the evidence points in the other direction. So be a, ther- be a therapist. Yeah, be a therapist too. But be a scientist and a judge separate yourself a little bit from your feelings and look at the evidence. What is the evidence? And this is why I tell my clients often, spend time in the morning and the evening pondering the things you're grateful for. Because if you do that, you'll be much better off. The next one is useful strategy. We're going to ask ourselves, are my beliefs and self-talk helpful, useful, and practical in attaining my goals? Now this is, I took this from a more secular thing, but realistically, what is all of our goals? What's a common goal that we should all have? Think of it in terms of you're at GYC. Follow Christ and bring others with us to Christ as well, right? We should be leading people to Christ. Well, if that is my goal, And anything gets in the way of that goal, should I make that a priority? Even if I feel like that for the moment? 
No, so if I'm looking for a helpful and useful strategy, I'm not going to be looking at the things that take me away from my goal. I'm going to be looking for the things that point me towards my goal, especially when I know that's a biblically-based goal. Man, my screen is having Tourette's. Or is this going to give me an excuse to stay stuck or be a victim? Sadly, sometimes we want to find all the evidence to believe what we want to believe because then we don't have to do anything. And we have a great, what we think is a great excuse for not having to move forward. Do you know this is specifically the, the story of the talents? Have you read that story? One was given five talents, he doubled his. One was given two, he doubled his. One was given one. And what did he say? He buried it. But the reason he buried it, he said, because his master was unfair. He thought that he was a victim. He thought that he was mistreated and that he wouldn't be favored, maybe because he only got one. But the fact is, is that if my goal is to multiply the talents, should I get stuck is it helpful for me to think that I only have one compared to this person's two or that person's five? No, but this is what we do sometimes. Maybe God's only waiting for the person with one talent to prove that they can handle one talent before they, give, they get more. But if we don't handle the one talent, will we get more necessarily? No. God, remember, God wants us to be victorious, so he might just keep giving us one talent until we get more. Sometimes we find ourselves walking through life blindfolded and we try to deny that we're the ones who securely tied the knot. We want to blame others for the helplessness or the hopelessness that we feel, but in reality, it's something that we've brought on ourselves and we need to look at that. The last one is rational alternative strategy, and this is where we ask ourselves, are there other more rational alternative beliefs in self-talk? So all I'm doing is asking myself the question, is there something else that I could be looking at that I'm missing? And could I come up with a belief that is more appropriate or makes more sense in this situation? And these are two books, Mind, Character, and Personality. I want to encourage everybody to read that. I've said that each session so far. It's a great self-help book. And it comes from one of the best psychologists I know of. And then the next one is another one that I recommend um, when I'm working with the Depression Recovery Program and also um, Nedley Depression Recovery Program and also when I'm doing my own individual counseling. And it's called Telling Yourself the Truth. And it's a Christian book that uses the concepts of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mind, Character, and Personality. And that's by Ellen White. So these are some examples of disputing. What evidence do I have that I'm worthy? Because some people say, I'm not worthy. So if you're having that question, the best thing to do is start looking for reasons why you might be worthy. Where's the best place to go for that? The Bible, yeah. Find out who thinks you're worthy. What does the Bible or God have to say about me or my situation? Sometimes we think we're in a hopeless situation. Well, I can read a myriad of stories throughout the Bible showing how hopeless situations are God's specialty. And so what can God do with this? Maybe I'm doubting myself, but I should really be paying attention to what God can do. What are the exceptions to my thinking that I'm hopeless? Maybe there's some exceptions that I haven't looked at. Do others think my life is over? Sometimes people will say, I think my life is over. Do other people think that? Sometimes it's helpful to get someone else's perspective because they're not emotionally attached to the situation. In the scheme of things, is it really that important that this person isn't trustworthy? Who is or has been trustworthy in my life? And the reason I put this one up there is because a lot of times people say, well, I just can't trust anybody. That's a common misbelief that I just can't trust anybody. Well, it's kind of a misbelief and it's kind of a belief. Maybe we can't trust anybody, but we can trust one person, right? We can trust God. And if I can't trust another single soul on this earth, does it mean I have to give up and go isolate myself in my room and never come out? I can still hang out with people even if I don't trust them. Who says I can't? And what if 
maybe that's holding me back from blessing other people and being a witness to them. You know, one of the things I love about being a therapist is people will trust me with things that they won't trust anyone else with. And it is a huge blessing when somebody says, you know, I haven't told anybody this. Thank you for listening to me. I don't care if nobody's trustworthy. If I get to be trustworthy to one person, I don't want to focus on what other people are doing for me. I want to focus on what God can do through me for other people. Am I only thinking this because someone suggested this? Sometimes we believe things just because other people have irrational beliefs. Maybe we need to look at that a little bit more. Will this help me in my desire to move forward? Sometimes we get stuck with our beliefs and it keeps us from moving forward. Would I allow a little child or my best friend to think this way? Sometimes we'll say things about ourselves that we would not let anyone else, especially a child, and yet maybe the part of us that's hurting the most is that little child that was hurt long ago. And then the last one here, these are just examples. When is a time I was treated fairly? Sometimes we say, oh, life isn't fair. I have a quote that I made up for this. You all can please just attribute it to me. I'm just kidding. But one time I was tempted to believe life was unfair because something had happened in my life and I thought, man, life is so unfair. I want you to read this and... Do you know what? When I thought that, God, the Holy Spirit like whopped me upside the head and I started thinking, wait, last week I was with my friend and she paid for me when we went out to eat. And maybe a couple weeks before that, I had actually, I've been fired three times. If you want to hear more about it, come on Sabbath. <laughs> and I'm gainfully employed like right now. So, <laughs> not by GYC. But, but, and I started thinking of all of the things that God had done in my life for, that were really unfair, but in my favor. And I thought, wow, what a lame thing I was telling myself all this time. But proof, there is actually research that shows that all of the stuff that I'm teaching you work, works. And research shows writing down your thoughts, so this is part of the homework I hope you will do because of hearing this seminar, writing down your thoughts, questioning them, or in other words, disputing them, and then replacing them with true and helpful thoughts is quite possibly the best way to treat depression. And I would, in, I would suggest that there are a lot of other things besides depression that it cures. But this is from some recent research that was done. Now I wanna share with you really quickly some um, six different principles. If you feel like you're overcome by negative thoughts, if you feel like you're overcome because this is ministry of healing the mind, some of the things that we do to ourselves are actually directly playing a part in why we're depressed, in why we're experiencing anxiety. And so I want to give you something. A man by the name of John Piper, he's not an Adventist, but I think this is a really important thing that he's come up with. He came up with something called ANTHEM, and it's an acronym, and it stands for six different things that we need to keep in mind when we're plagued with difficult situations within our lives, addictions, trouble that we're having. The first letter, the A stands for avoiding as much as is possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. Now, if this is negative thoughts, sometimes that means staying away from the people that are instilling some of these negative thoughts in us. We're like, you know, the Bible says the dog keeps returning to its vomit. Sometimes we keep walking right back into the situations that cause us to think negatively. And I hear people say, oh, but they're my blood. If we want to talk about blood, who actually gave his blood for us? What's more important, the fact that this person shares my DNA and genes or that this person actually shed his blood for me? Sometimes we need to walk away from the people that are sabotaging the way we think. And sometimes we need to walk away from the very things that cause us to keep going back into our addiction. And I will say sometimes I've met people who are actually addicted to their depression. They keep going back to those thoughts as though they can't leave them, just like I see people who are addicted to drugs. The next thing, I'm going to say it from memory, 
Oh, actually, here. Um, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. This is about avoiding those things. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And the second step is say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. I don't believe, I don't believe lust just has to do with sexual things. I believe we lust after a lot of things that are not good for us. And one of those things is our negative thinking. And say it with the authority of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, no, you don't have much more time than five seconds. I watch people toy back and forth with it so long that now they're exhausted and they don't have the ability to say no. Say no and say it matter-of-factly in the first five seconds. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't have time. Spirit of Prophecy says that if, if Eve had simply walked away from the tree, she wouldn't have had time to be pulled in and, and sin like she did. T stands for turn the mind forcefully toward Christ as a superior satisfaction. There are two things in this I love. One, forcefully. Sometimes we do, oh, but I can't. Okay, maybe. That's not forcefully. Be matter of fact, do it diligently. And the second part is look to Christ as a superior satisfaction. It's not enough to just turn towards Christ. You have to actually see him as a superior satisfaction to the things that you've been doing all along. If you don't find him as a superior satisfaction, it's just going to be drudgery. You're just going to be going through the motions. But sometimes we have to actually invest, and what we invest, we directly get out of the investment. Saying no will not suffice. Attack the promises of sin with the promises of Christ. The Bible calls lust deceitful desires, Ephesians 4.22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, Proverbs 7.22. We must stock our minds with the superior promises and pleasures of Jesus. I tell my clients that if you want to learn about something, if you really want to invest in something, study it. If you're dealing with negative thoughts, read everything the Bible says about thoughts. Read everything in Spirit of Prophecy that talks about thoughts. One of the reasons I like doing presentations, I'll just be honest, is not because of you guys. That's, the, that's like the other 90% of why I like doing it. But there's a big chunk of the reason I like doing these is because I'm learning this stuff as I have to do it. This is the blessing that comes from doing it, is I'm learning all these things. So I, I don't just do it for you guys, if I'm honest. I do it for myself. There's something that happens when I'm studying this, and I know people are going to be listening. I'm learning it myself. The H stands for hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. This is, this, is not, this is not a pansy theory right here. This is not a pansy acronym. Here is where many fail. They give in too soon. I hear so many people say, I tried. And I say, how hard did you try? How long did you try? What kind of effort did you put in? Well, I tried. <laughs> I don't really like the word try. I tried to push it out and it didn't work. I asked, how long did you try? How hard did you exert your mind? The mind is a muscle. You can flex it with vehemence. That's a strength word. Hold the promise of Christ before your eyes. Hold it, hold it, don't let go. Keep holding it. How long? As long as it takes. Fight. For Christ's sake, fight till you win. If your little child was dangling off a cliff and the only thing that was holding that child from hurting itself fatally was your arm, would you go, well, I held for five seconds and nothing happened, so I'm just going to give up. If something is that important to you, if someone is that important to you, you will hold on for dear life and you will not let go. Do not let go. If you want change in your life, you have to hold on and keep doing it with vehemence. And don't give up. If you don't want to be depressed anymore, if you don't want to have anxiety anymore, if you don't want to be in the same life patterns that you're in, sometimes you have to kick it into gear. You have to fight for it. But I'm telling you, it will become your superpower. God will take your weakness and turn it into a strength. 
E, enjoy a superior satisfaction. Cultivate the capacities for pleasure in Christ. One reason error reigns in so many is that Christ has so little appeal. We default to deceit because we have little delight in Christ. What steps have you taken to awaken affection for Jesus? Have you fought for joy? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 90, verse 14. I hear a lot of people say, I want to do this, but I don't think I can. I tell them, you know, sometimes we're waiting for an emotional stirring within us to do something when God's actually already implanted the ability within us. We're just not taking advantage of it. Take advantage of what he's already done. Don't keep praying for it to happen. Because it's oftentimes that praying is just our excuse not to actually do anything. And then the last one is move into useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. Lust grows fast in the garden of leisure. Find a good work to do and do it with all your might. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, Romans 12, 11. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Get up and do something and do it for Jesus' sake. Every single one of you can get up and do something. I've met people who have a lot of handicaps. I'm talking about physical handicaps, and they still find something to do. Every single one of us. Does anybody know what happened in 1996 with the women's gymnastic team? Anybody recognize? That's a picture of Carrie Strug. She went, she did this event here, and when she finished it, she landed wrong on her ankle. And I believe she actually fractured it. Now, what do gymnasts do every single day? They train, they practice. Do you know that more gymnasts break things from stress fractures than actually landing wrong? Do you know what a stress fracture is? That's merely when you pound something so hard for long enough, the bone actually just breaks from stress. It's not because you land on it wrong. It's not because you turned it in the wrong way. It's the stress has eventually worn out the bone. That's what these athletes do. And she got to the end of this event and she landed wrong and she actually fractured her foot. Now this event, the vault, you get two times. She was the last person to do it with the potential of winning gold for her team. They were in the ranking for gold but she only had one more opportunity to do it. What do you do when you have a fractured foot? What do you think she did? She went and did it again. They wrapped her ankle and she did it. Do you know what vaulting does? Do you know what you have to do to vault? You start from one end over here and you pound each foot because you have to build up speed and momentum to eventually then land on that springboard. And that's, if you've ever tried bouncing on one of those things, it's not like a trampoline. It's like wood and heavy duty springs. You're just getting enough resistance to push you up as you pound down. So on both the healthy ankle and the broken one, she pounded both feet on that. She flipped up over the vault I don't know how many feet they go in the air, but it's pretty high for those gymnasts. They're not too tall. And then she landed on both feet. Every single thing she did was hurting that ankle even more and more. But why did she do it? It was painful. Do you think she was focused on the pain? She was focused on the goal. She was actually focused on the gold. And every single one of us have something beautiful to look forward to. She walked off of there. They helped her. her. Her coach, as soon as she landed firmly on the ground with both feet, she picked up the hurt ankle and fell over. As she knew as she stuck it that she was okay and she could pick it up again. And her coach went over and grabbed her and pulled her off and put her up in the air and showed her off to everybody because she had just won gold for them. They could tell. There's a picture of her. She's in pain. You can see it on her face. But for her, it was more important to do the thing that she needed to do than the pain that she experienced doing it. Healing takes effort. 
This is the next talk, but I'll leave you there, and I hope you will stay for the next one if you'd like. And uh, there's one more today. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.